coming up on this episode of Inside the Epicenter. Welcome to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a show about the Middle East, Israel, and how it affects us as Christians. I'm Carl Muller, the Executive Director of the Joshua Fund, a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. And today I'm joined by our founder, the one and only Joel Rosenberg, who is uh, joining us from Israel. And uh, Joel, we're excited to see you and uh, talk with you today. I'm really challenged by uh, some of the things that uh, we've been seeing in our world these days, the challenges of a world really that seems to have lost its way on so many levels, both in Israel, where you live, and in the United States. Joel, we're going to talk about what it means to be an evangelical today. And um, what does evangelical really mean? Joel, welcome. What is an evangelical? You're an evangelical. I'm an evangelical. What, what is that? I am great to be with you, Carl, and great to be with you from Jerusalem. Thrilled about this uh, Epicenter podcast that uh, we're doing. And, uh, and I think it is important to get, you know, in our early stages, some of these early shows, to, to really talk about what it is to be an evangelical. Uh, in the United States, that term is becoming increasingly politicized, right? It's a theological version of Christianity, and we'll talk about exactly what it means, but there's a lot of negative connotations in the United States right now. Partly that's because evangelicals have been, most, have been very supportive of President Trump, and that has been a messy journey with a messy election yeah. that's been highly contentious. And we've seen some real messiness. <laughs> to, to, I mean, I'm using messy because I don't want to use stronger language than yeah. that. And a transition to a new presidency and the whole thing. And so people who don't like Trump, are attacking people who are evangelicals as though evangelical means Republican or mm. conservative, whatever. But there's other people who are just hate the evangelicals for what we believe theologically. And yet in other places, like here in Israel, Carl, evangelical is an incredibly positive brand name. I hate to use that term, but I'm going to use it because here in Israel, the term evangelical means, wow, a Christian who really loves Israel and the Jewish people, and doesn't want to throw us under the bus. <laughs> right. And right. Jews have historically divided the world, Carl, into several <laughs> groups. There are the people that hate us and want to annihilate us. Right. Okay? Then there's the people that hate us and want to help the people that want to annihilate mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Then there's the people who don't either hate us or don't really care about the Jewish people, but aren't going to do anything, aren't going to speak up to stop the people that are going to annihilate us. Right. Then there's the Jewish community. Right. And then uh, what do we do with Christians? Historically, um, Jewish people have looked at Christianity as annihilators. Mm. And there has been seasons where to be a Christian meant you're trying to either physically kill yeah. through a crusade or an inquisition or you know, a Holocaust, literally kill us. Yeah. Or that you try to help the yeah. people that kill, try to kill us. Uh, uh, my family escaped out of Russia uh, as Orthodox Jews, my father's side. And sure. th- they saw the czar of Russia, Tsar Nicholas II, as a Christian, mm-hmm. right? Or the Russian Orthodox Church, who hated us and was fomenting all these pogroms sure. 
anti-Semitic attacks that led to the deaths of 60,000 Jews and then the rape and the beating and the traumatization of many, many, many more. So, But then you have like Corrie Ten Boom and her family in the Netherlands, you know, protecting Jews and literally going to a prison camp for that as well. So that's the thing. So 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 if you had the Christians that have been lumped together who have been haters or forcible conversion, like, you know, we'll love you as long as you forcibly convert to Christianity and then we won't kill you or rob you, right? And that was part of the Inquisition also. Now, more recently, post-World War II, Christianity has been seen by Jewish people as a lot of mainline Christianity, whether it's Roman Catholicism or liberal Protestantism, as, okay, they're not trying to kill us, but they're politically trying to tell us that we have no right to live in the state mm. of Israel, you know, that we're apartheid-creating, racist, colonialists, imperialists, and let's slap Israel with boycotts, sanctions, and divestments right. known as the BDS movement. And so so over time, over the last 75 years or so, Jews have been watching and going, what is an evangelical? Because you guys are trying to make the case that your brand or your version of Christianity is different from everybody else. And we're noticing that. Mm-hmm. Israelis are noticing that. Jews are noticing that. And they're trying to understand why. You guys seem to love us. You guys seem to want to invest in us, bless us, visit us. Even when there's suicide bombings and buses are blowing up and cafes Mm. are blowing up. Who's coming to visit? Jews? No, not really. It was evangelicals in buses. Like, who are you people? And why do you keep defending us? Now, I'm not answering your question theologically yet because I wanted to deal with it as an Israeli, as sure. a Jew, as an evangelical here, because it's a very different question if you ask it in Venezuela yeah, or, or China right. or, you know, or <laughs> Korea or, or, or even the United States. Here, the term evangelical is a very positive word. Yeah, it's the Christians that really, we don't really get them. We know they still would love us to follow Jesus, but they really darn it seem to love us and <laughs> They want to bless us, and we don't get them, Right, but we kind of like them. That is the vision of evangelicals here. I think it's great that you have such a perspective from Israel on the definition of an evangelical. I mean, and the differences that it can have in different parts of the countries around the world. I know today evangelical is is not a blessing word in many parts of the United States. And I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, you know, the history of evangelicalism, um, I think a lot of evangelicals would say, hey, we're, you know, we are in the great long tradition of Bible-believing Christians since the time of Jesus and the apostles. But is right. there like a history of evangelicalism that kind of puts us in the current context where we are right now? There is. And I, and I think what's, I think the simplest way to think about it is the simple New Testament biblical gospel story. I read it. I believe it. I'm trying to live it. That's an evangelical. That's the simplest way that I've ever been able to describe it. Now, in the United States, the National Association of Evangelicals has a wonderful definition because, you know, they figure we, we probably need to define it more than we just believe the Bible and we want to live it. That's right. true, right? Because a lot of theological uh, denominations or persuasions aren't big on encouraging lay people to read and study the Bible for mm. themselves. Uh, evangelicalism is, is, is different in that way. 
But these are interesting. These are the four definitions that the National Association of Evangelicals, the main organization uh, overseeing, you know, sort of as a movement in the United States. And they say that there's four distinctives, okay? Number one, the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe, right? I'm not looking at church doctrine or church history primarily, although mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's an element, but it's the Bible. What does the Bible actually say? Right. That's my highest authority. If you challenge me and say, well, so-and-so said in the fourth century, this particular bishop or that, I might say, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I'd like to understand why he thought that. Or if you tell me that, you know, whatever. But I'm going to go back to the, the Bible is my highest authority because it's, I believe it's the word of God. So therefore, what does the Bible actually say? That's the first thing. The Bible is the highest authority. The second key element is it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as Savior yeah. and Lord, right? So there's a very specific element within evangelicalism about, I believe that the Bible is my authority. I also believe I'm supposed to tell other people mm. that Jesus is the Messiah, and Messiah means that he's the Son of God, that he's not just, you know, the Muslim version of Messiah is wonderful. You're the Messiah. You're a leader. You're a prophet. Yeah. But you're not really God. Mm. Evangelicalism, based on the Bible, says, no, 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 Jesus is God, and we need to tell other people that because the word evangel yeah. comes from the Greek, which means good news. Good so this news, is in right. a world that's gone mad, as you start out the whole podcast, <laughs> in a world gone mad, the world needs good news. Yeah. It's not getting it from the mainstream media, mostly. It's not getting it from politics. But Jesus says, I am the good news. I am the evangel. I, and the New Testament tells us the story that God knows that the world is crazy. And so he wants to rescue us, not just now with wisdom, discernment, strength, courage, peace in the midst of craziness, but also rescue us for eternity yeah. by forgiving our sins. Yeah. And that Jesus is that one and that we need to tell other people. That's really a critical element of evangelicalism. You're not trying to force it. Right. You're not trying to coerce. You're not trying to be deceptive. But you are proactive, forward-leaning in saying, this is good news, and I need you to know it. You can make your own decision, but you, you need to make a decision based on the facts. So right. that's the second. The third one, which is interesting in the order of the way the NAE puts it, the third one is Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. Yeah. Okay. So we've just talked about telling the good news, but now this is the good news. And right. so, and the good news is that I'm a sinner, but God loves me, but I can't get to God because I'm a sinner. And, you know, to cite Chevy Chase from the seventies on Saturday Night Live, he's God and I'm not like, I can't, <laughs> um, well, not the Chevy Chase city, but you know, he's, he's right. That's, that reference may for our young listeners go, <laughs> But I know they'll Google I'm it. Tracking and with they'll you, Joel. What I'm talking about. <laughs> but the point is that um, God is perfect and He's holy. We're clearly not perfect, and we're clearly not holy. So, what religion is is us trying to become good enough mm. to enter God's presence and live with God forever after we die. That's one of our great fears of life, right? Is that is death? And so the question is, how do we live now? a useful, healthy life, and how do we 
spend eternity with God rather than in some sort of judgment uh, that the Bible speaks of as hell and yeah. speaks of as pretty bad. So the point is we can't. Every other religion is us trying to get to God through all the good things that we do. And God is saying no matter how many good things you do, I'm sorry, unless you're completely clean and completely forgiven, completely pure, I can't let you into my pure universe, my world, because you'll ruin it. Right. What did Groucho Marx say one time? I wouldn't join any club that would have me as a member. Well, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so uh, we were trying to teach our kids once. Uh, we have four boys, and uh, we're trying to teach them how fastidious God is about perfect purity. And so I said, it was a hot summer day. We were having a little Bible study with the kids in the morning. And I said, you guys love a good cold glass of water, right? He said, yeah, absolutely. Okay. You know, Jacob, go get a good cold glass of water from the kitchen in a nice clear glass. Okay. So he brings it. I goes, oh, we all would love to drink that right now, right? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Okay. Now, what do we also love in this family? We love ketchup. Okay. Noah, he was our youngest. Noah, go get some ketchup from the kitchen. Okay. So he get some ketchup. I said, put, just put one little drop squirt of ketchup in that water. Now, just one little drop, but it starts to diffuse in that water and it looks disgusting. <laughs> I said, now, now, Noah, why don't you drink that wonderful, crisp, cold glass of water? He's like, that's disgusting. I'm not doing it. No, no, but you love water. Yeah. And you love ketchup. It's just one drop. What's the big, no, that's, and they're all like, oh, that's so disgusting. I said, that is sin. God made us pure mm. in his original conception of us. Yeah. But we've got probably more than one drop. But even if we only had one drop, we wouldn't want to drink that water. So the point is that, that the New Testament, the story of Jesus is, you don't have to work your way to me. I'm coming to you. I will die on the cross to pay the penalties for your sins. And then if you or just all you have to do is say yes, <laughs> that you repent, that you turn away from your desire to do sin and follow me and I will heal you and I will cleanse you. So that is critical to evangelicalism, that there is no other way. You can't work your way to God like religion says. All right, fourth point, real quick. Only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's gift of eternal salvation. Mm. And so this last point is comes from Jesus himself saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. And so this is Jesus' exclusive claim. He's not saying, I'm one of many. I'm not one of the prophets. I'm not one of the gurus. I'm not. I am God, and I am the way to God. I am the way to heaven. And if you don't come through me, there ain't no other way. And now people resist that exclusive claim. But I would say it like this. If you're dying of cancer Hmm. and somebody comes to you and says, hey, this pharmaceutical company just created the cure for cancer. Now, I know people have issues with pharmaceutical companies, so don't get... But let's say they created it and they were offering it for free. Just just pretend in some universe. (laughs) And you're like, no. You're saying, you know, like, Carl, you're telling me that's the only cure for cancer? No, I'm sorry. There's got to be another one. Try another one. Yeah. "Um, There isn't, and I'm giving it to you, and I'm giving it to free. No, I don't want it. I don't believe in one cure. Well, why? There is a cure, and you need a cure, and you need it quick. 
So those are the four key points of evangelicalism. And um, it doesn't mean you can't be an evangelical and be a Catholic. You can. Sure. You can be a born-again Catholic who believes this. There are some other doctrines within Catholicism or Greek Orthodoxy or Russian Orthodoxy. You can be an evangelical in any stream of Christianity if you believe these things. But if you don't believe any of those things, then just calling yourself a Christian isn't really what the New Testament teaches. And so that's one of the challenges. um, That's fascinating. That's fascinating. So, I mean, when we talk about the four, you could call them, I wouldn't use this term in the Middle East, but the four pillars of evangelicalism, you know, you have this idea that the word of God is our authority. The person of Christ and the work of Christ is the good news. The salvation that Christ offers us, the forgiveness, the the redemption that he offers us, those are all Christian words, but they're all offered to us as the only way. And then each one of us needs to deal with that and to recognize that just following the teachings of Jesus doesn't make one an evangelical. And I think that's critically important, especially as we look at the work that the Joshua Fund is doing and that we're doing in the Middle East and in in parts of the world, around the world, but that every evangelical Christian around the world should be engaged in, right? So there's, what are the practical characteristics of living life as an evangelical? I mean, maybe versus some other traditional Christian or something like that. Well, well, one of those things is to go back to this point about that evangelicals are people who believe that when Jesus said, go be my witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth, that maybe we should do that. At meaning, like, there's a whole, you know, that one of the driving forces and distinctives of evangelicalism is we really want to tell people. Now, there are times we get nervous, we get afraid, we don't know exactly how to explain it, we don't know how to answer challenges. But evangelism, the process of telling people the good news, is so central to what we do that that can look in various forms. Billy Graham was the most famous evangelical in the world in the 20th century. Indeed, he he was the most famous evangelist in the history of the world since the Apostle Paul. He spoke to more people face-to-face more than 200 million people, and often in stadiums of 60, 70, 80, 90, 100,000. In South Korea, once he preached to a million people in one day, all pulled together. I had the joy and opportunity to meet him several times, and it's pretty extraordinary to meet someone who's like meeting one of the original apostles. And I don't mean that in a theological sense that he had you know, divine scriptural authority to write the Bible or whatever. I'm talking about to have somebody God is chosen, a farm boy, right? Uh, North Carolina. Carolina, To go talk face-to-face to 200 million people and tell them the gospel, but also on radio, television, the internet, and to be met by kings and princes and all that, just extraordinary. But that doesn't always have to look this way. I'll give you one example here in the Middle East. So I've been leading a series of delegations over the last several years, invited by kings and crown princes presidents and prime ministers of Arab Muslim countries. They wanted to meet evangelicals and build a friendship. Maybe a different program would talk about why would they want to do that. But part of it is because there are 600 million evangelicals in the world. In the world. Wow. 
world. Wow. 60 million or so in the United States alone. And obviously in the United States, a lot of influence culturally, spiritually, but also politically. And the term is used so often, <laughs> certainly during the Trump years, that it kind of caught the ear of Muslim leaders. Anyway, long story short, I'll give you an example. I was in Saudi Arabia and I was in Riyadh. I was in the palace of the royal family leading the first evangelical Christian delegation, actually evangelical Christian delegation of any kind. Wow. In the 300 years that the Saud family has controlled and ruled the vast majority of the Arabian Peninsula. Wow. The foreign minister told me, Joel, do you realize that your invitation by the crown prince makes you the first Christian in the history of the Arabian Peninsula to be invited to meet with the royal family in the palace in Riyadh? And I was like, no, I didn't, I didn't know that. Why you decided to invite a Jewish evangelical uh, <laughs> and an American and an Israeli, that's a lot of things that the Saudis didn't like to do in the past. But one of the first things we talked about I, as we met, and I brought a group of you know 10 other leaders, I said, can I just ask you something as we get started, just to sort of define our terms? Your Royal Highness, um, I'm guessing that the term evangelical is not a term used much here in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Is that a fair assessment? And probably the most controversial uh, leader in the Arab world, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, colloquially known as MBS, he laughed and he said, no, I think that's true. We don't use that term much here. I said, well, we've got a de- uh, an ordained evangelical Christian pastor as part of our group. Could he just take a few minutes and sort of explain what it is that we believe, what is an evangelical? So this is a very real conversation for the Muslim world, for the Jewish world, for people who they're hearing the term in the media, in politics, but they don't know what it means, but they're curious. And so for me, all right, I'm not Billy Graham, but I was sitting with one of the most influential, arguably the most influential Muslim on the planet, and he's asking me, or he's at least allowing me to explain what it is to be an evangelical. And, wow. And, um, Incredible. It's a very relevant conversation. Well, Joel, I want you to get back to that in a, just a moment because it's so critical to our understanding of what's going on. But I wanted to give a little opportunity here for something for our listeners. Hi, this is Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund. After you're done listening to this episode, make sure to share this podcast with your friends and family. We're just getting started, and your help is critical to help others learn about how God is moving in the epicenter. So tell them about Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, and allow them to be encouraged as well. Joel, you are just finishing the last segment with a conversation that you had with one of the leaders of Saudi Arabia, MBS, one of the most influential Muslims in the world, and yet you're an evangelical. (laughs) I have to ask, how do you see your being an evangelical inform and help your understanding of life in the epicenter, in, in Israel, in the Middle East, and how does that, how does that work? How does being an evangelical 
inform your work there? Yeah, well, uh, good question. And, and maybe the best way to, is to share uh, the things I said to him because it's maybe a concise way to explain it. So being the first evangelical that he'd met, <laughs> well, that's not true. Uh, he had met the, the Anglican uh, Archbishop uh, Justin Welby uh, earlier in the year, but he hadn't invited him yet to Riyadh. But, but being the first one in the room in the palace um, and being Jewish and being an Israeli, I, I said, you know, one of the topics – our group wants to discuss with you. There's a lot of things we want to discuss with you. How come there's no churches in Saudi Arabia? Can we work on that? <laughs> you know, how come there's been so much teaching in the, in the mosques against Christianity, against Christians, etc., and Jews? And you know, so we talked about a lot of things. And but I said I want to talk a little bit about peace, with the possibility of peace between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And I think there's three things that would be important for us to share with you, Your Royal Highness about the way evangelicals see peace. And I, th I think this will help uh, give at least an angle on the question for you, Carl, uh, that you're asking. I said, number one, it's important for you to know that our love as evangelicals for Israel and the Jewish people is not political. Hmm. It's theological. It comes from the fact that starting in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, God decided to choose a, a certain people, the Hebrew people, from of which Abram was the first, and said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a great name and a great people, and I'm going to you know, give you many descendants, and I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you uh, some promises. And Anyway, the point is God started a process that led to the creation of the biblical kingdom of Israel back in the Bible. And we see that continuing in the New Testament. The Messiah is the anointed one, and that's what it means in Greek and in, and in Hebrew, Mashiach. And it means that Jesus was coming to be the ultimate, eventual, full-on king of Israel and the world, but he came first as a Jew right. to Israel. His first followers were Jewish. He was teaching in Hebrew Aramaic. He was speaking to a Jewish world. Why am I saying this? Because when we look from Genesis to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, we see God has a, a great love and plan for Israel and the Jewish people. And so that's why evangelicals love Israel, because God does. Yeah. And that's why we love and want to defend the Jewish people, because God loves and cares deeply about the Jewish people and created them for his own. So that's number one. We just want you to know that. That's part of our beliefs. Number two, Jesus, who is our highest authority, right? He's our Messiah. He's our Savior. He's our God and King. Jesus commanded us, as his followers, to love our neighbors. So we don't want you to think that because we love Israel and Jewish people, that that's all we love. We love all people of all nations. We're supposed to. I'm not saying... Your Royal Highness, that we do this well all the time. I'm just telling you, we're, Jesus commands us to love our neighbors. And who are our neighbors? Well, as an Israeli living in Jerusalem, my neighbors are my Palestinian friends as well as my Jewish neighbors. And more broadly, the Arabs. And more broadly, Muslims. And we're not supposed to hate your team. <laughs> we're supposed to love you. I'm not saying we always do it well. So we're working on that. But that's one of the reasons we're here. But I, I just want you to know, Your Royal Highness, it's not either or for us. It's both and. God loves Israel 
and the world, and the best verse for that is John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the whole world, that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus. And and I didn't actually share that verse at that time, but, I, but I'm telling it that to you and, your, and the audience now. Sure. So that was point one. We love Israel. It's not political. We love Jews. It's not political. It's theological. Two, we love our neighbors. And three, we are commanded to pray. And we're commanded to pray for peace. Yeah. Psalm 122, verse 6. Famously, King David commands all followers of the Lord to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And um, I joke that that didn't mean we're supposed to carve out a peace and then, you know, kill everybody else that didn't get that peace. You know, I mean, no, no, you're supposed to, the peace, P-E-A-C-E, the peace of Jerusalem. Spiritually, politically, geopolitically, in every way, pray for peace. And I, I said, you know, as we pray for peace, the question is, how can we encourage the Saudis to make peace with Israel and the Israelis make peace with Saudi, including the Palestinians and, and with Iran and with everybody. Right. So those are three distinctives. You know, it didn't really get into all the elements like caring for the poor. Right. Sure. That's widows and orphans that mm-hmm. we're supposed to come alongside, uh, showing compassion even to those who totally disagree with us. There's lots of elements in the Bible, which is our highest authority, that teaches us how to be a follower of Jesus. We see it in the words of Jesus. We see it in the life of Jesus. Wow. But we pick three to sort of have a conversation um, that most people don't get a chance to have. Wow. So you actually had a chance to to explain that to the head of Saudi Arabia. I mean, my goodness, that's an amazing experience. I mean, just thinking generally, how are you received? I mean, evangelical, we talked about earlier, has evangelism as a main component on it. And I, and I know our listeners are going to be curious about, you know, evangelism is a kind of a touchy subject yeah. in uh, the Middle East, uh, particularly with Muslims and, and uh, Israeli Jews as well. How are you received as an evangelical by Jewish, you mentioned Palestinian and Arab leaders? I mean, how does it sit with them? It's a good question, Carl. And I don't have the classic answer. I'm going to give you, okay. because you're asking me, I'll answer what, how I'm I, asking I, you. Yes, I give you my actual answer. <laughs> yes, but it, it, but we see different people in different walks of life uh, as evangelicals getting responded to differently. But I will tell you, when people meet me these days in this season of my life as a, as a New York Times bestselling author, as a writer, as a, as a leader, and as the heads of these delegations, they have already vetted me. Most of the people I meet, I don't mean at the grocery store or you know. At, at church or just the friend, the, the parents of my kids' friends or, you know, just life, you know, norm. I'm talking about the people who say, yes, I will meet with you, have a meeting, have a lunch, have a coffee or invite you. They have Googled me. They have vetted me because I'm controversial to some, to many. But also that's just way nobody has a meeting with anybody these days without Googling them. And when you Google me, you're going to find that I'm pretty outspoken about a few things. And one of those is that I deeply believe that Jesus is Messiah, that he is God, that he is the only way to uh, know Christ and to know the Father to go to heaven and all those other things that we've just talked about. I believe that. So lots of people don't want to meet me because they are concerned 
that either I'm going to come on like, you know, horseradish, you know, being super strong and in their face and kind of, you know, hostile or because they don't want other people to know that they've met with me because that would be a betrayal of the team. Mm-hmm. Right. I have Jewish leaders mm-hmm. here in Israel, for example, who won't meet with me. Uh, some of them I know why. Some of them I can only guess because it's just radioactive for right. some people to talk to a Jewish person who believes that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm kind of reminded of uh, Nicodemus, right? Uh, having to well, come, that's right. You know. I do meet with a lot of people privately. Right. A lot of people privately. Mm-hmm. Who really, they, they vetted me and they still want to meet. They just don't want anyone to know about it. Right. Okay. I'm, I'm willing to do that. And so uh, this is one quick important distinction. Evangelical, if you're a Gentile, you, Carl, you would be very welcome among most Israelis, most Jews, most Muslims, I think, who are reasonable, you know, are not jihadist or, you know, extremists, because you're a Gentile evangelical. And so for Jews, particularly, that's not a threat. Right. You know, we talked about it. Evangelical, that's a, that's a good thing. You love us. You think, you think Jerusalem is our capital. You may love the Palestinians, too, but... But you don't hate us. You're not trying to divest from us, boycott us, you know, whatever, isolate us, oppose us. You really think we're important and special, and that's nice. But a Jewish person who believes in Jesus, whoa, uh, wait a minute. And that goes right back to the life of Jesus. Mm. Jewish leaders rejected him, most of them, not all. And many of the Jewish people of Israel at that time, not all, but many, rejected him and Therefore, his followers, many rejected also because it seemed like a betrayal mm. of the team. But just to wrap that up, I, I am finding something unique and odd, and it's about the moment that we're in. Yeah. There is a moment that we're in in history. I don't think it's going to last. But there's a moment, a season that we're in, uh, an interval a kairos moment, we might say in Greek, a, a unique special moment in time where it's like God's favor of curiosity is on evangelicals. Hmm. Jews are curious. Muslims are curious. Now, if you come at them to wait, you know, too hard, too strong, if you're unkind, if you're not willing to have a dialogue, if you're not willing to say, listen, that's what I believe. And, or if, you know, maybe they don't even want to get to the theological yet. They want to talk about something else first. But if you come on too strong, they're not going to talk to you. But for some reason, I am clearing the TSA system, the, the system in the United States that by which you clear onto an airplane. Right. They are saying he believes that Muslims need Jesus, Jews need Jesus. He's pretty strong about this, but he's also a novelist and he's a columnist. And let's meet with him anyway. I find it fascinating. The people who won't meet with me, I assume that. The people that will meet with me, I'm intrigued because it means for either they're not paying attention or they're like, <laughs> no, I get it, but I'm still curious. I, yeah. He seems like a kind of person that I could at least have a, a conversation with and we don't have to agree but there's things I want to tell him and there's things I want to learn and so forth. And that is the type of person I think Jesus wants me to be. Yeah. Well, I think it's remarkable to see how that's actually taken place in so many different aspects of the people you've met with. What about like Palestinian? And you mentioned some of the Arab leadership. That curiosity, is it there as well? The Palestinian community is, is much more complicated for a number of reasons. First, 
I can't have no connection with anybody in Gaza because the Gaza Strip is, which is like almost two million Palestinians, but they are essentially cut off. They're under a, a terrorist regime of known as Hamas, which is a, uh, a derivative of the Muslim Brotherhood out of Egypt. And they've been at war with Israel for so long that Israel has them sort of contained and we can't just go visit. Okay, so I don't really have any relationship with Gazan Muslims. Now, right. some Gazan evangelicals I have met and, and built wonderful friendships with. There are only about 1,500 evangelicals among the Palestinians in the West Bank and Jerusalem. Now, there are more Palestinians who describe themselves as Christians, but among the definitions we just discussed, theologically, there are only about 1,500 Palestinian evangelicals still in the Palestinian Authority. Okay, we call it the West Bank. Biblically, that's the territory of Judea and Samaria, but the world calls it the West Bank of the Jordan River. Now, worldwide, there are about 30,000 Palestinian evangelicals, mm-hmm. but they have moved outside of the Palestinian Authority territories and Gaza to the rest of the world, mostly the United States, Europe, the Gulf, because it's difficult to be an evangelical as a Palestinian, and it's difficult to get a job. Mm-hmm. And if you're not a Muslim, you're, you don't have a lot of options. And it's a very challenging life. Now, the Joshua Fund has we, – we have a heart to strengthen and encourage the church in this region, the region I call the epicenter. Mm-hmm. Thus the name of the podcast, Inside the Epicenter. Well, <laughs> we ought to do that, I guess, on a different yeah, show. it's a what catchy title. Why the epicenter? What, uh, maybe we already did that. But anyway, we'll, we'll keep talking about those things as we go. But the point is we are trying to encourage and, and, and just come alongside, pray for, support Israeli pastors, both Jewish and Israeli Arab pastors, but also Palestinian pastors and their wives and their kids and stuff. And it's been a, um, a slow-going process because the issue of being an evangelical is not the problem with my evangelical Palestinian friends. The issue is you're Jewish. The issue is that you're Israeli. The issue is that you are a Zionist. And by that, we mean we believe that God has given the land of Zion to the Jewish people to rebuild a country that was prophetic. Doesn't mean we want to hate Palestinians, you know, all the things we just talked about. But that is a problem because most, I mean, almost every Palestinian evangelical is like, look, we don't have a problem with Israel. We, we do. We have a problem with things that the Israelis do, the curfews on us, the other restrictions of travel, and we want to have our own state and our own sovereignty and all these other issues, and we feel occupied. But as Christians, as evangelical Christians, we're not trying to be in a war against Israel but when you tell us, Joel, or others, evangelicals, that you believe that God has given a biblical right to unsaved Jewish people to build a, a society, a, a sovereign state that affects us as Palestinians, well, we don't agree. And that bothers us deeply that you think that, that you believe that. We totally disagree with you. So the challenge is how do Lynn and I, our boys, how do we say, look, which is more important to us? Jesus or Jewishness, being a follower of the God of Israel or being an Israeli, like uh, the God of Zion or Zionism. Mm. What we've had to try to do over time is say, listen to our Palestinian friends, listen, we have strong beliefs. We do. But what we believe most is that God loves you, that he has uniquely called you 
uh, to, to follow him. And you live in Bethlehem. We think that's the coolest. You live in Ramallah. You live in Jericho. Like, that's the coolest thing we've ever heard of. And he, you are God's servants. You are God's people. And our job is not to fight with you over politics or even necessarily the theology. But what's our job? How can we strengthen you? How can we encourage you? And that takes time because you can't just say that. You have to show that over time that you are willing to listen, uh, that you're not there to try to persuade them to believe everything you believe, but that you generally are a brother or sister and you you want a friendship. And I had to go to the leadership of the Palestinian evangelicals one Saturday morning in Bethlehem, maybe a decade ago, and come and say, listen, the Bible commands me, Jesus commands me to love my neighbors, and I've never come to visit you guys. Wow. And I have to start by apologizing. Everything you've heard about me is probably true. <laughs> Hopefully some of it isn't. <laughs> you can Google me. You can disagree with me. But I'm just telling you, your argument that you make that evangelicals in the West don't even act like there are Palestinians who love Jesus, that mm. there's no reason for them to come visit you. Unfortunately, that's been true in my life, not because I hate you, because I, I didn't think about how would I come find you how would I come build a friendship with you? And it's my mistake. It's my fault. I'm sorry. Wow. And even that was enough, but it was a start because it was true. <laughs> and I, I really do want to understand your yeah. world. And I'm not asking you to become a Zionist. We don't even need to talk about the politics from my side. You can tell me anything you want to tell me, but I'm not going to argue with you on that side. I just want to love you. I want to get to know you. How can I help you? And wow. Joshua has baby stepped along over the last decade or so. I'll make one other point on this. I think it's relevant because it's challenging. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not. And hopefully we'll have some Palestinian evangelicals on who can I tell would, you exactly what they absolutely. disagree with. Absolutely, yes. I would love that. I mean, they, they have every right. And, and I tell them, <laughs> when we invite these pastors and ministry leaders from the Palestinian uh, territories to come to Joshua Fund-sponsored conferences, I make it clear, this is the topic generally I would love you to discuss but you can say anything you want. You, there are no restrictions. I'm not asking you to come here and go, oh, I love Israel. <laughs> I'm not asking you to be a Zionist. No, I'm asking you to be you. And whatever you believe and whatever you – even if I totally disagree with you on something, I right. don't care. Right. I, and, but it's challenging because I am more out there in the political world. I'm meeting with uh, Israeli officials and with Arab leaders and – the rest of our team, yourself included, mostly don't do that. So it's a little easier to be just a pastor, just a you know, just to come alongside and be the church. Sure. Because you and the rest of our team is not really interacting much with the very people that they would most disagree with. So I add a odd element. I'm just being honest. <laughs> An important odd element. Well, nevertheless, I mean that's one of the challenges and, and you know and I will wrap up this part with this. I think that we as Jewish followers of Jesus and certainly as Israeli evangelicals or Messianic Jews and certainly American believers and others, I think that the Palestinians have been the most forgotten people, the mm. most criticized, the most ostracized. And there are reasons that, that you could say, well, Palestinian terrorism. Okay, yeah. yeah, that was a bad branding for the entire society. But followers of Jesus, real evangelical followers of Jesus, we need to lean in and say, listen, God loves you, and we have blown it. Mm. We don't agree with everything. You don't agree with everything with us. But, boy, teach us how to love you. And that doesn't mean giving up. 
no. all of our theological views. There is a view of reconciliation that some people in this region have. And what they really mean is you reconcile with me if you give up your deepest held theological and personal views on various issues. I don't think that's reconciliation. Right. I think reconciliation is the unity that Jesus speaks of in John 17, where we're not probably going to agree everybody uh, on every theological point from the role of the Holy Spirit, the role of women in leadership, eschatology. There's a thousand things that Christians disagree on. But can we love each other and walk together, even if we disagree on some very important things? And I think that's the test. And unfortunately, I'm probably one of the more difficult people to... I'm not trying to test them. Maybe. I'm just saying for them, for a Palestinian to be friends with me is a little tougher than maybe it is to be a friend with you. I'm not trying to make it that way. I'm just more outspoken on some issues. Well, it's integral to everything that we are and we do. And Joel, there are so many other questions that we want to address on this thing. I mean, we want to talk about things like the evangelical relationship to the traditional church, uh, the evangelical relationship about Israel. I mean, why is it so important in God's plans? Uh, And go deeper into that relationship between evangelicals and Palestinians. I mean, I just look forward to parts two and three of this conversation about uh, evangelicals in the Middle East and what do we do about it? (laughs) I'm just super grateful that you've been able to be with us on this episode. And I want to just thanks to everyone who's been listening to this Inside the Epicenter podcast with Joel Rosenberg. I'm Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund, and we want you to understand so much more about what God's doing in this region, in the epicenter. And in order to do that, we have some amazing opportunities for you to uh, follow through on further questions. And tune in next time to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg. Uh, We want to continue this conversation around evangelicals in the Middle East. God bless and thanks. Finding uplifting news in today's headlines is often like searching for a needle in a haystack. At the Story Behind podcast, we believe in the power of finding heartwarming tales and are happy to share empowering stories with you every week. Get inspired by the note a waitress received from a patron dining alone. And even hear about how one VIP passenger made a hardworking pilot get emotional before his flight. To start listening to the Story Behind podcast, visit lifeaudio.com 